You're listening to You Play A What, a podcast by a musician for musicians. My name is Vincent and I play the euphonium. Join me as I sit down with successful musicians to talk about their specialization, inspirations, and career developments. Hello everyone. Thank you for tuning in to episode 5 of You Play A What. This episode is a little bit longer than usual, but it certainly didn't feel like it during the course of the interview. My guest today is one of those that has turned to the dark side. He has made the transition from euphonium player to something that one would argue is a lot easier. What could be easier than playing the euphonium? It's basically instatone, isn't it? Join Melvin Tay and I as we speak about the weather in Manchester, his favourite phrase is just around the corner, and the importance of food. And we might have spoke a little bit about what he's been up to recently. So please enjoy You Play A What with Melvin. today is an extremely dear friend of mine. He's the first ever Singaporean euphonium student that graduated from the Royal Northern College of Music. He's now based in the very sunny Manchester, but he is a complete Tottenham Hotspurs fan. Welcome to the show, Melvin. How are you doing, brother? <laughs> yeah, great. Yeah, really excited to be doing this today. Uh, it's my first time in the podcast, so um, I'm not sure what to expect. Uh, how are you? Fantastic. I'm fine. I'm fine. Uh, thank you for taking time out to do this. So obviously you agree with me that you're a complete Tottenham Hotspurs fan. Totally. Just for that, that uh, what, one month. <laughs> when they were top of the table, right? Yeah. Yeah. How's the weather today in Manchester, actually? Yeah, it's been great. The weather today has been really good, actually. It's sunny. You will be surprised the, the weather in Manchester is actually really sunny the past few weeks. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just so strange that when the lockdown happened, suddenly it's good weather throughout all of UK and then it just makes staying at home suck, if, if you want. <laughs> yeah, and uh, sorry to have you cooped up at home doing this interview with me when it's, you know, one of the four days in Manchester where the sun is actually out. Oh no, it's, it's, it's perfect, you know. You, you never get sick of staring at the screen, looking at the Zoom videos and all that, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, loving life, right? Loving life. Yeah. Good. And and how are things there at the moment? Are things slowly easing back to some kind of uh, normalcy? Is it still very quiet in the streets? Or have you just been at home and you, you don't know what is going on outside of the walls of your home? Well, I mean, I must say that I haven't been out for a few days now. But actually, when I've been out, it's actually quite... It's it's not as empty as it was. I, I think certain times of the day, it's quite empty. But if you go to the parks and the, you know, very nice hangout places, open areas, it's it's quite crowded and it's quite surprising. It's a bit scary, really, because uh, you, you're not sure whether there's actually any social distancing. 
there, which is it's kind of interesting. But other than other than that, it's still a bit surreal, and I think it's only starting to sink in what is really happening over here, if I must mm. say, because because it's just so many people. I see so many people around, as in so many people are staying at home, and usually I don't see so many people because they. I, I go out and do stuff outside. People don't stay at home. And now everybody's cooped up at home. So you, you kind of hear and see people in the next flat and stuff like that. So it's it's really interesting sometimes. Yeah, like finally meeting your neighbors, right? Yeah, I've seen so many of them that I've not seen before. So <laughs> it's, it's kind of interesting. Uh, what are the, the measures over there? Is it, uh, are people out with a mask? Is it compulsory? Yeah, how is it like over there? Yeah, right now it's it's fine. You can you can go out of the house without having a mask. You can go out for as long as you want now, I think, without as long as you're back home. You, you basically, you can't stay overnight anywhere else. You have to, to be back home at night and only on public transports, like uh, more enclosed areas, you need to wear a mask. Yeah, that's, that's the latest rule anyway. And then up to six people can meet outside, socially distanced. Hmm. Yeah, from different households. Yeah, I see. So all the beer gardens are they still like open at the moment? Uh, n- none of the restaurants are are open at the moment. So they are open only for delivery. So I see. Unless you want to sit in the beer garden and you bring your own beer and then you you sit separately if you can get in there, then that's fine. Okay. Which, which I did a few times. I was sitting in the Bridgewater Hall and drink beer with someone, but but not often. Yeah. I see. So the, so the pubs are all kind of shut at the moment. Yeah, most of them are shut. Okay. So what have you been uh, doing to keep yourself busy then, considering that you've been at home most of the time? Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I've been attending a lot of online Zoom stuff. You know, chatting with, chatting with people, different people, organizing some some talks, some quiz with with the the music groups I work with over here, and then it's it's been quite great at the beginning of this lockdown because there were so many conductors. That were, that were also free, and so a lot of them were willing to go online to share their experience. So I've been catching a lot of those, those discussions and talks online, and then at the same time I've been doing some arranging, and and of course reading a lot. I've been reading quite a lot of, of books. And uh, these quizzes you're doing them for the groups that you're conducting, or for the public, or for school. Is this some kind of trivia game or? Oh no, the, the quiz is like a pub quiz kind of thing, but we do it online. So it's a, a quiz for mainly for the the group I work with, and we did one last night. So it was a quiz on um like on operas, and you know, do you know where this opera is based in? What is the name of this fictional town this opera is in? And who sang this popular recording of of this like, you know, the the West Side Story? Who are the two famous singers that are on the famous recordings and stuff like that. Yeah. Okay. Just to keep everybody entertained during this uh, during this period of time to keep the people engaged. Yeah, and the participants are all the members of the the orchestra. Yeah, as the members of the 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 group or the society that that they are in. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I thought that was quite important because you know over this time, especially for groups like that, they the weekly uh, musical experience they go through you know they, they always look forward to the rehearsals weekly to keep them entertained and that's the and that being taken away from them during the lockdown is it's quite tricky and so I, I, over the last few months i've been thinking of organizing some stuff and then we just started this month to to have some 
we we had a catch up last week. We have a quiz this week, and then in the next few weeks, we are going to talk about you know directing. Somebody's coming in to talk about directing. I'm going to talk about a bit of the music of some operas, and and yeah, it's just to keep everybody a bit more involved and thinking about music and discussing about music, even though we can't perform together. Yeah, I think this is uh, important. And it gives us something to do, right? That's the most important. Yeah, thing. I think it's the same as well, isn't it? There's quite a lot of people doing stuff like that back back in Singapore as well. And I've been seeing quite a lot of stuff online, which is really interesting. Like you, you guys appeared on on the NAC stream on Facebook, and I, I, I watched uh, yes. it. it. Was it was really interesting to to see to see what an ensemble of you know it's such a unique setup. And it's quite interesting to see what an ensemble like that the 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 colors that can come through for it. Yeah, I mean, we we try our best. You know, uh, it is rather interesting instrumentation that we have for the group, but we are still at the beginning stages. So hopefully um, we, we get some reach through doing things like that and people will be more inclined or intrigued by the colours that they hear. Then they might want to write a few things for us, which will be fantastic. Yeah, I'm sure it wouldn't be a problem because it, it's so versatile, the, the, the types of instrument you guys can all, all play. So yeah, should we go? Yeah. So you're very, you're very kind. You're, you're so <laughs> kind. Number one fan. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, in the spirit of the show, I have to ask you, what do you play? So, of course, I introduce you as a euphonium player. So, do you still regard yourself as a euphonium player? Well, so, currently, I'm a conductor and I wave my hands around. And I also play the euphonium, or at least I used to. Because it's been almost two years since I, I played it properly. So... I would say yes and no because I've been playing a bit over the lockdown for some of the, you know, those lockdown videos you see online. But honestly, the first five to ten minutes, it feels amazing. And then after that, I, yeah, nothing really comes up properly. And, then, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and it makes it really difficult to actually record those stuff because you kind of want to get a good take from start to end and you have to go, you know, almost no mistakes from top to bottom. So yeah, that was excellent. Yeah. So... So you've got, you've got 10 minutes. So what? You've got like two and a half takes to pick from, basically. Yeah, so I do it across the day, I think. I play it once and then I rest for, you know, half an hour and then play it again and rest for half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you've taken on your studies in conducting for a couple of years now. And I've been in touch with you on and off over the last couple of years. And I know that... Uh, recently, when we spoke, you mentioned about working with or doing some work regarding opera productions. Of course, we can't really put on any sort of proper concerts nowadays. But are you still kind of working on that at the moment? Yeah, so at the moment, I've been doing quite a bit of research into the production of uh, reduced arrangements for opera. Yeah. And I've, it's because I've been working with quite a few opera societies in, in Manchester and Liverpool. So there, there are quite a lot of reductions available out there. And some of it is really good, but a vast majority of it is quite poor. And it's, it's quite understandable because quite it's quite time consuming to do, especially doing some myself now. It's quite time consuming because, you know, even an aria, you could take you two weeks and then imagine doing the whole opera. And then if you do the whole opera, you need to figure out whether the instrumentation you use for the aria kind of works for that whole opera as well. And what, what is available out there at the moment, quite often is a, a full score. 
and then you see people penciling in and using the pencil to cancel out this part and then pointing an arrow to the next part. That that's one type you will see mm. around. And sometimes you see arrangements where it just have a a direct copy of the string parts. And then it's I, I think it's really important when you do an arrangement like that to redistribute the parts. Because, you know, there's uh, string divisis, there's some some stuff that you know you're lacking in the because of the missing winds and brass, you might want to write in the strings as well. You know, so, so I think there's, mm. there's stuff you need to balance and you need to work out to do the arrangements. So I, I thought there was quite a lot of gr- ground to be explored in terms of, you know, instrumentation, what's the best combination, whether synthesized sounds could work. So I, I started doing a bit of research into it. And I think over the next few years as well, I'm going to do, I'm going to dwell more into to doing research into production, producing opera reductions and also producing like a, kind of a guide on how to to make a, a good one, if that makes sense. Mm, definitely. And pardon me for not having this knowledge of uh, reduced opera, but what are we looking at when we are talking about a reduction? Like how much of a reduction to what kind of ensemble? Ah, okay. So for example, like um, opera, usually we keep the singers there. So the singers, the number of singers don't change because that's mainly not the issue. The main issue, because that's what needs to happen on stage. But usually operas are written for, especially the popular ones are written for full orchestra. You know, you need about 40 to 50 players or even a chamber orchestra to play it. But what I'm, I'm looking for, or especially what I'm trying to explore with the research I'm going to do, is I'm hoping to reduce it to around 10 players so that it can, it can almost mm. fit in any... How do I put it? In any location, you can bring it. You can bring it to people. You can do it in community centers. You can do it in churches. You can do it in town halls. And it's quite interesting because when you reduce it to such a small amount, there's there's two there's a few ways to do it. You can either try to stay as true as you can to what was originally written, originally written, and try to to get the same feeling and the same vibe, or you can do it totally different where it's just a a reimagination of the whole score. So like there's there's quite a popular reimagination of Carmen for 10 players and there's actually a guitar in it and auto saxophone in it mm. and there's also a, oh nice um, the trumpet part is quite often muted so it creates a different different vibe but those you know the guitar and the saxophone doesn't appear in the original at all yeah mm, so just uh, additional colours although it's a reduced size but it could actually means that there's a little bit more variety of uh, sound colours in the ensemble yeah especially when you're bringing it smaller maybe it's better to reimagine or like some people, they really just want to hear the original, so making it close as original. And I'm going to explore both both sides, if that makes sense, if, if you know what I mean. And I think this idea of making opera mobile, you know, uh, reducing the size of the orchestra, it might not be a might not necessarily be a good thing for musicians, in a sense that uh, maybe less musicians will be hired for opera productions. But overall, cost of opera production is going to reduce by so much. And it actually makes things a lot more viable. Like over the last couple of months or so, we've seen also quite a number of opera productions in Singapore. Mm -hmm. So I was lucky to be involved in one, which is uh, with the Orchestra of the Music Makers. Oh, is that the the one of the ring? Exactly. So that was um, the Valkyrie. So we did the entire Valkyrie, which is of course huge. Uh, you're gonna have a bit of challenge, I think, if you are if you want to reduce that to ten players. But the cost of putting up an opera is absolutely crazy. 
Yeah, definitely, because you have the singers, the props, you know, the all the instrumentations, and then especially with like Wagner stuff, the there's such an extended range of instruments. And I think if you can find a way to to reduce one aspect of it and still try to keep some sort of musical integrity, I think it, it makes it so much more accessible to the public because it's it's cheaper to put on, so it's easier for the public to to actually watch it because it might be cheaper for the tickets, or you can actually bring it to them to to where they are instead of making them come to a opera theater where some of them you know don't really feel like being there so exactly yeah and i think at this day and age being able to bring our art to the audience is actually quite important because not a lot of people if given a choice would make the decision now to say that i'm going to pay money and i'm going to go and watch and spend three hours to watch an opera or two hours to watch an opera you know they much rather be in their comforts of their own home or go to somewhere that's a little bit nearer, or to the movies even, you know. Yeah, definitely. I think if you can find some way to get them hooked on it, and then maybe they would they would start going to to those kind of you know properly go to the opera theater and watch it. But I think this is a very good way, to, like a a gateway for people to get into to operas or even even orchestral works because there's also is it's also a thing for orchestral works to be reduced as well. But we see that more for orchestral works than for operas. And what do you think about? opera productions that are localized. So uh, what I mean by that is in Singapore, there are perhaps opera companies that remodel. That I mean, the main outline of the story is still the same, but they throw in a lot more local context into the story. So it makes it a little bit more relatable for the local audience. What do you think about things like that? And in your way of recreating the sounds of the opera, do you think that this might be something that uh, you also be looking at to kind of reimagine the story and sort of localize it for the community? Yeah, so regarding the first part of, of that, I think it's quite important to make sure that the opera in some sense have some connection to the local audience so that the local audience can appreciate it. And it's, it's important to keep it like some people want it to be performed how exactly it is. But I I don't see it that way. I think it's quite important to to recreate it so that um the like the local audience like I, I'm I've seen a few productions in Singapore before and they actually use English in it sometimes. You know, they sing in English, which is perfect. And they, they try to get local uh you know actors or actresses to 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 come in and just do some of the spoken parts which then create some kind of connection with the audience. And I think when you create something like that mm it makes people more connected to the the actual story of the music because most of the stories in operas are quite universal or at least the ones that are, how do you put it, the ones that are popular, you know, like La Boheme or someone falling ill with a, you know, like non-stop coughing and stuff in, yeah. And and these kind of stories are, are universal throughout regardless of what culture you're in. But if you, you set it in mm. the original setting of the country, then people can connect re- with it even though the, the underlying story is is something that people could relate. You know, you you, you know what I mean. Yeah. So I really think it's, yeah, it's quite definitely. crucial. For example, the the operas I I do over here, we we usually sing it in English so that the audience can at least understand what the story is going on about, and we we don't really change too much of the setting to to suit the 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 local scene because a lot of our audience that come, 
they they kind of want to to see the the, the old productions or they want to see the they, they know what they're in for so they, they that's what they're looking for but when i think you bring it to our audience like yeah. singapore i think opera is not so common until in recent years i think mm-hmm. if, if, am i I'm, I'm not i don't think i'm wrong in saying yeah. that and i think it's very important to try to encourage people to watch it by injecting a bit of local you know local flavors in it mm, for sure yeah and when it comes to the arrangements um i i i will have a think about it but at the moment i'm still in the early stages of the arrangements so i haven't haven't really decided because i really need to structure how i'm going to to do carry out the research before i can make a new fair enough yeah for me it's always about making the music that we do or the music that we make less intimidating for the audience mm-hmm. I find it a very difficult balance sometimes struggling between programming something that is suitable and audience friendly and something that still is close to my own artistic interests. Because when you are programming in a way that you are accommodating to like the lowest denominator, then you end up putting up a program that is basically very accessible music, but you don't kind of feel any sense of... um, you're not excited about the program. Yeah, so I think if there's a way that we can do something that's exciting for us, yet relatable for the audience, I think that is like yeah, the definitely. perfect goal. I mean, in the end, we are performing everything in a way for the audience, isn't it? It's it's what we are doing is for, for the people watching it. And if, if, if you can create in such a way that will make them want to engage with it more, I think then we should always try to go for the option. Unless, unless, of course, it devalues it, then maybe we should have a think about it. Yeah, all the best. I mean, we hope to see some of your work in the next couple of years. Yeah, thank you. I, I just hope, because I'm hoping, you know, I'll be producing all these reductions of full opera along the way. And hopefully that will also give me some work to conduct them. So let's see. Should be fun. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, for some reason, if there's any opera you can reduce for four wind instruments, just Definitely. let me know. Yeah, would be super it might be possible because there are quite a few <laughs> uh, chamber operas that probably could reduce it to even more smaller chamber size. So let's, let's, I'll have to think maybe it's possible. Yeah, cool. So, and then now the next thing I want to talk about, which is also something that you raised recently, is this new program called Conduct It. So this is Conduct and then a capital I and T. So good thing that Melvin sent me the research forum at the RNCM last night where um, the head of uh, conducting at the RNCM, Mark Heron, uh, spoke about this program because initially I just thought that it was called Conduct IT because of the capital INT, right? So good thing I didn't make a a fool of myself. So uh, let me talk briefly about this program. So basically this is... uh, Erasmus program, which is uh, supported by the EU. And there's a collaboration between four universities, if I'm not wrong. So the four universities are the University of Stavanger in Norway, the Open University in the UK, uh, University of Aveiro in Portugal, and the Royal Northern College of Music, also in the UK. From what I know, this platform is going to be a fantastic resource for conductors of all levels. So maybe as a conducting student at the RNCM, 
I think Melvin has a little bit more insights on what this program is actually about. So if you could just share with us, why do you think this is going to be super useful for conductors of all levels? And what is so attractive about this program? Yeah, I think this is something that everyone should check out when it comes out. And I think it will come out in its full form probably sometime next year or maybe the year after because it depends on the situation now with COVID. So a lot of the filming are, are put on hold or the recordings and stuff. But I mm. think it's it's really good to check out because the first thing is going to be online. So anybody anywhere in the world can watch it and, and review it and it's it's going to be free. So it, it goes from fundamental stuff from, you know, basic to advanced conducting techniques, you know, and then there's a conducting workbook that accompanies it. So there's a there's some videos on how to use the workbook. And the workbook has what you would call arrangements of excerpts that can teach conducting. And it's reduced to a quartet size stuff. So you can use it on a, a string quartet or wing, quintet, uh, wing quartet or any, any instruments any number of instruments as long as you have instruments to play all four parts. And so th- that's really good for anybody who mm. is starting out in conducting or who wants to, to review basic technique. And, you know, if, and especially for, you know, teachers and uh, students where you need to go out and then you need to, to do a bit of conducting. At least you have some, some, some sort of basic idea of what to do to, to, to make things work. So that, that's one part of it. Mm. And then another part of it is there's there's a whole section on score study and analysis, and it 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 shows how 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 to look through a score, what is important to study in it, how to analyze it, and yeah, and and I think everybody in this sense, almost all the conductors I've spoken to are quite individual in that, in that, and it's something that conductors develop as they go along. But I think what they provide there can create some kind of a a platform, a basis to start with before you start building on your own your own experiences. And so that's the second part. And then the third part is there's going to be case studies mm. on the process of rehearsals and performance. And there's there's quite, quite a few that, that we have done already. So we have done the, the one for contemporary music, how how to rehearse a contemporary music from the first rehearsal all the way to the concert, how to, how to do a crossover project. So there was a crossover project with a few jazz musicians and a, and a chamber orchestra. And how to how to make it work in that setting? Because especially for chamber orchestra musicians, a lot of them are not used to to you know the jazz inflections and how to and playing you know with the, the a swing that sounds natural and it doesn't sound like a, a forced swing and stuff like that. So that's the two mm. that have been done, and there's going to be one on an orchestral work, one on a chamber orchestral work, and even one on a, on brass band contests. So that that might be interesting to some people as well because not many people would know how brass band contest works in the European side of stuff, and it can get really intense. Yeah, for sure. And then the the last section that I can remember of is there'll be, there's a huge chunk of interviews with conductors at different stages of their career and also interviews with, you know, orchestra managers or or composers on their experience with working with conductors. So, so it's, it, it works for everybody at all stages, mm. whether you're, you're just an amateur conductor conducting an amateur group or you know you really want to pursue conducting or you are conducting at a high level and then you you listen to the interviews you know done by like a few famous conductors and it's applicable to everyone and yeah i think a few bite-sized stuff will come out towards the end of this year 
Yeah, but it's it's a shame that I think some the the full release will be pushed back a bit because we couldn't record some of the stuff. Because like the brass band case study was meant to be Foden's at the Europeans this year, but of course that got cancelled. I see. Okay. And yeah, it would be quite funny because if you go online and see some of the workbook stuff, you will see gifts of myself, you know, conducting a two four pattern nonstop ah, and stuff like that. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. Sure. So you see me endlessly conducting for ages. I think on it. It sounds absolutely fantastic from the way you've described it. I have n- not that much of an interest to pursue conducting. So like, for example, um, joining somewhere like the RNCM or you know, uh, do a, a master's level course in conducting. And this could be like fantastic resource for me to look into to learn how to clearly communicate with the students, right? Yeah, def- definitely. And I, um, I was thinking about this, you know, like, uh, probably six, seven years ago before I, when I was still playing the euphonium properly and, and, you know, before I started any of this conducting stuff, you know, when you look at the conductor, you, you can tell immediately whether the conductor is good or the conductor is, is, is not really helpful at all. But then you can't really point mm. exactly what the conductor is doing that makes it very annoying to play for. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? And I think yeah. This, yeah. this being online is quite helpful because it kind of demystifies why when you look at a conductor, it's actually really comfortable to play or it's really easy to play. Or why sometimes you look at a conductor and mm. it's like, oh, it's so frustrating, why can't I play together? And I think Mark said in a research forum as consuming conducting, um, we, you and I, we've been doing it for a large part of our playing days. Mm-hmm. And even that for me, sometimes when I go up the podium, I'm like, my hands are not doing what I want them to do. And I can't imagine, for example, if there's a music teacher in a school that has like, for example, piano background, that is not used to looking at beating patterns or do not understand the structure of beat patterns, this could be extremely helpful if they need to conduct, say, for a performance in a school. Yeah, definitely. Because it, it starts from the very basic. And if you want to go even further, you can go as, as, as far as you want to on, on this. I believe the URL of this is conductit.eu. Check it out. Uh, there's already a few interviews on there. There's Sir Mark Elder. There's a few other people on there. Uh, you, can li- you can watch those videos and you can wait for some of the amazing content to come out uh, on that platform. So now let's talk about something a little bit less serious, which is the first time we met. Okay, so I, I believe you have a better idea than me. This is just my gut feeling. So uh, what I remember, our first proper meeting was uh, was at one of the Singapore uh, youth band, the ad hoc youth band. Really? Are you sure? Or, I cannot I mean, remember any of this. Which youth band was that? I mean, we had to rehearse in one of the JCs. You remember? Yes, we had to, but what... Ito was conducting. We played like first week in E-flat and all that kind of oh, stuff. Oh, yes, and then he was saying um, there's a new baritone euphonium part or something like that. Was was that the... Yeah, he wrote a, a specific baritone part and a specific euphonium part that is uh, not the same. But I don't think that's that's the first time. Is that the first time? I'm, I'm not sure because the first time I met you is probably not the same time as the first time you remember meeting me. Yeah, exactly, right? So... 
I think we have a little bit of a, a gap there. So what is your recollection? Because there's, there's so many early impressions that I can't remember which is the first. But I think the first time I spoke with you, and I, I'm not sure if you remember this, was at a Brass Ensemble concert at the Lee Foundation Theatre. And I think I chat with you briefly, but then I'm not sure if that is before or after the, the youth band thing. And then I remember you had really long hair then as well, and I, I, I don't think it was the color it is now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, come on, don't embarrass me like that. Now now photos are going to float on Facebook. Uh, okay, look, I remember doing the concert. Was your brother playing in that concert? Yes, my brother was playing in that. That's why I went to watch it. Okay. And then I definitely had a view for a, a few minutes. Right. I'm so yeah. sorry, I have absolutely no clue. I can't remember oh. any of that. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um there you go. Yeah. So that must be probably two thousand if you are talking about that concert, I believe it's about two thousand and seven when we first met. Okay. That's so early. Because I was thinking around two thousand and nine, but I couldn't exactly find the right date for that. So yeah, you're probably right then. Two thousand seven. Of course, fast forward to after the youth band project that we did. The next thing I know, you were flying off to Manchester, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So then the next, you flew off to Manchester the spring, no, that's not spring, the fall of 2013. Yeah, that's right. And and then I think the by that point, we still haven't really hang out properly yeah. together. No. I think. And then the f- the first time that I actually remember that we hang out properly together was when you got me in to play at OC the next year in over the summer. Yeah, I mean we did a couple of things that summer. To be honest, we did the SIBF, twenty fourteen. Yeah, we did, did the SIBF as well. Yeah, the saxophone symposium and the trombone festival. Exactly. With OC. Yeah. And then the, the SIBF. Correct. And I, actually, I got a very good memory of this because the SIBF was quite a fun time because. I remember the two of us, just the two of us, for one of the rehearsal, going to a Tsuha store. Oh, yes, yes. Do you yeah. remember this? We ordered so much food and I yeah. think we spent about $20 each. Yeah. And then we went to the rehearsal and then just because it was so full, we just couldn't really <laughs> it Yeah, exactly. And we were just like, yeah, sure. We just order like two person eating like what? Four dishes, maybe? Four? I, it's, I think more than, I think it's more than that. <laughs> Well, for those of you who do not know, Melvin has this very special ability that he does not feel full. The, the only time when he starts feeling full is where the food comes out the other direction. So it's usually very fun when you go and eat with him because when you ask him, do you want to order some more? He'll say yes. Unless the other party says no, the food will just keep coming to the table. Exactly. So I need to actively um, limit myself to the the type the num- amount of food I eat every every meal. <laughs> yeah, and uh, that that was fun. Of course, doing SIBF in our section, there's there's the both of us, and there's also a certain uh, Sean Yap that's playing the euphonium as well. Yeah, which is of course uh, Sean. Those of you who know Sean, he's an excellent tuba player, but at that point of time, he was just maybe a little bit bored of tuba. Yeah, so he played euphonium uh, for that uh, competition as well. Yeah, I remember there was many tubers in that. There was really four tubers, so yeah. I think that's why Sean decided to, to join us on the euphonium. Yeah, exactly. 
Then we we fast forward by two months. This was September of 2014. And that was when I left Singapore and went to Manchester. So that was my first year of studies in the Royal Northern College of Music. So this, do you remember our first meal in Manchester? Our first meal in Manchester? Yeah. So obviously, after, um, I, after I touched down, I was crashing at your place for one week before the halls were ready because I'm a cheapskate and we refused to pay. So do you remember where we went for dinner the first night? No, was it Babylon's? No. Okay, you're just bringing back memories of tea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little bit further down. So I think our first meal was at Happy Seasons. Oh, okay, yeah, for the roasted stuff. Yes, okay. beautiful roast duck. Yeah, and all that kind of stuff. We have had so many meals together, so I honestly cannot remember <laughs> just yeah. the first one. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So what are, what do you think are some of the fond memories you have of the both of us in Manchester? Fond memories. Yeah. No, are, the, are there any? <laughs> the, of course, the, of course. The the biggest one is the the exploration of food we had together in Manchester. Mm. You know, every time we, we visit a, a a restaurant together, and then especially all the times where you cook those amazing stuff that you were experimenting with, in in your flat, that was that was amazing. You know, you know how you you feed eight eight to ten people all the time yeah. every time you cook. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's incredible. It brings people together, right? Food. That's what it does. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So I think I, I want to give like a quick mention to this little shop. I'm, I'm not going to name the name. Okay. I don't know whether it still exists or not. Uh, but there's this little restaurant. They are like a takeaway, but they have maybe two to three tables for sit-in as well. So they serve like this kind of um, mala and uh, Sichuan food, which is quite rare at that part of Manchester because this is, I would say, at least a good 25 minutes walk away from Chinatown. So this is very near uh, where we lived in uh, my first year and your second year. And mm-hmm. we, we went there a few times and I think the owners started to know us and then there was once I went and they allowed me to use their bathroom. So that's really nice of them. But the bathroom was was located um, behind the kitchen, so I had to walk past the kitchen. And I went look at. I went into the kitchen. I'm like, I'm a little bit shocked, right? Um, because there's things everywhere. So I looked at that signage of their that their hygiene level, which is in in the UK. It's also kind of A B C D, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So very similar to the Singapore system, but I would say for most parts. I hardly come across any restaurants in Manchester that hits below a B. That's true. Yeah, that's yeah true. usually you see it's either A or B. So um, yeah. on this restaurant, no difference. They were at a B. But I look at their kitchen, I, I, I didn't believe it. So actually I went online to the, the system. I, I checked the restaurant and actually their hygiene level was a fair bit lower than what they put up. Really? Was it a D? I, yeah, it is actually. So, <laughs> not that that stopped us from going there after that, but I just found that it was really interesting. Yeah. I mean, the food was amazing, so it wasn't. <laughs> exactly. The last time I've been there was with you, so I've not been there since then. Mm. And the last time I've been there, I think 
in my last two years of studies, I've not gotten any food from there. Okay. Yeah, so it's been like quite a while. So yeah, actually, I'm really not sure <laughs> if they're still there. <laughs> so other fun times in Manchester with you are, for example, Christmas celebration. All the Singaporeans get together or the foreign students will get together and we just cook up a big meal and we'll just eat and have a good time. Do you remember that one time that we went hiking? Oh, yes, with you and Xiang Ting, the, the one time we went. To, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I yeah. really enjoyed that hike, but I know you and Xiang Ting didn't really enjoy that at all. <laughs> of course, you enjoyed the hike because you're constantly lying to us. <laughs> what, uh, yeah. How many times have you said it's just around the corner? <laughs> that corner just never came? Yeah. Because that, that was something <laughs> that, you know, I, I learned in, in my army days where even though there's two hours left to go, they, they would just tell you it's just around the corner. So it's something yeah. I, I learned from that. Yeah, but it was quite a nice experience because when we got to the, the other side of the the hill, we, we went to the small town mm. and then we had, you know, scones and and uh, clotted cream and jam. You that? Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, yeah absolutely beautiful. <laughs> and that pub meal at the end of it, that was really good as well. Yeah, it was it? After the entire hike. Yeah, it was like right the train station, right? I think. Yes. Yeah. It's like a pub near the near the train station. So that was great. Yeah. So speaking of your army days, brings me to the next question. So this is about your musical journey and career development. So you are obviously one of those that started your music education a little bit later. I say a little bit later, not that you're old, but after national service. Of course, I know of a few people who also did the same thing. So can you share with us your entire process and your musical journey. How do you get started with music and what decisions you made over the years? Yeah, so starting right from the very beginning, I it was in primary school. So it was in primary one, in fact, I joined the school band and then I played the cornet for about five years. And I don't think many people know that as well, that I played the cornet for five years. And then after five years, I got forced and changed onto playing the euphonium. And then I did that playing the euphonium all the way until when I was in JC. And throughout mm-hmm. most of this time from primary school to, to JC, I never had a euphonium tutor. So most of the stuff I learned on the euphonium through, throughout those years have been either self-taught or taught by someone of my senior. So actually throughout those mm-hmm. years, I, I think I it was a shame because I, I did pick up a few bad habits and no one was there to guide me to, to stop on those uh, bad techniques in that sense. Yeah. And then I went into to army. And before before that, before going to the army, I always wanted to to study music. At least in my JC days, I already knew that I wanted to continue pursuing studying music and in particular studying mm. the euphonium. But then I went into the army. I went through BMT like everybody. And then I was trying to get into the, the SAF band as part of my national service. But I didn't manage to get in yeah. because they, they said that, or at least this is what, People in the band told me that there was no no space for NSF on euphonium when I was trying to get in. Okay. So I got posted to do to a signal institute instead, and then I became a signaler. So for mm-hmm. the rest of the one and one years and eight months, I was running around the forest carrying signal sets. You know, went to to yeah. went to Taiwan, went to Australia. And mm-hmm. I, it was quite tough for me during those two years because I really wanted to practice, but because I had to stay in camp during the week, 
I couldn't really practice only on the weekends. And it, yeah. it, I almost decided not to to pursue music. And even some point halfway through my NSF service, I was thinking of signing on. Mm. And so I actually auditioned to to sign on at SF Band as well. So I went to do an audition to sign on. And then they yeah. told me as well that there wasn't any space for a euphonium to sign on at that time. Yeah. Which I found it I, I found it really strange. And then and then but the funny thing was a few months later, I think they, they lost a few euphonium players like Ignatius went on to become the uh, the Ben Ben Manbusters program in, in UK. Yeah, so he got selected yeah. for that. So they lost one euphonium player. And then Joseph mm. left after a few months as well after that, I think. Yeah. Yeah, but then by that point, it, it was almost, uh, what, 15 months in? My NSF. Yeah. Was, and- I thought it, was, it wasn't worth to sign on at that point. Mm, fair enough. And at that point, have you gotten your offer from Northern already? So uh, not yet. So I I didn't get my offer from the Northern yet at that point. Okay. Yeah. Right. But at that point, things started to change because uh, my OC in 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 the army started allowing me to bring in my euphonium because in the evenings we have time, mm. and she she kind of let me um practice for for about an hour mm. every day. So there there was some there was a big change, and then that practice for an hour every day kind of helped me be able to put together a audition recording that I could send to RNCM. Right. Yeah. Okay. So in the end, I sent to RNCM and then I, I got in. So in 2013, I ended up going to RNCM starting for two years with Stephen Mead and then two years with David Taunton. And then I during that time, you came in 2014. And then towards the end of my undergraduate studies, I decided to pursue conducting. So I auditioned and I got onto the master's program the master's conducting program at RNCM, and it, it was it was an incredible experience because in 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 RNCM I got to work with a vast um, amount of repertoire and a variety of ensembles, and I yep. completed my master's last year, and since last year I've been on a postgraduate diploma course at the college as well, and I also currently regularly conduct ensembles from orchestras to brass and wind bands and to a few opera societies in Manchester, and I'm currently the the music director of Opera Viva mm-hmm. in, in Liverpool. So that's that's where I am so far. I see. So let's go back a few years. And you you said that during your JC days were the time that you thought that you're going to pursue music as a career. Did, did that occur to you earlier? Say, for example, before you entered JC, do you had that thought of wanting to study music then? And then did somebody tell you that perhaps you're a little bit too young and this is not the right time? Maybe go do something else first, like JC or Poly or whatever, and then you can decide for yourself later what you want yeah, to I do. Yeah, I did think about that in, in my secondary school days. And I can remember somebody telling me something like that in secondary school, but I can't remember who it was. Like, you know, go to JC mm. and at least get your A-levels first before, then you have more options if you need to. You can do music after that if you want to. You can, you can do, you know, you can do something else as well because you have your A-levels. And for me, yeah. at that point in time, I, I didn't disagree with them because I, I thought that was the most logical thing to do. And even at JC, you still can uh, do music at quite a high level, I think, in, in terms of... I, I mean, I wasn't in the MEP. For sure. So yeah, I, I was just in the school band, but the school band was quite in, intense. In, you know, ACJC band is quite intense. And, mm. um, and, yeah. and it was a good learning experience. But I would say I properly started focusing on it in JC because only in JC was a time where I started to decide to take 
you know, grade 5 theory, grade 8 theory and stuff like that. Whereas before that, I had no qualifications, any music qualifications whatsoever. Mm. Yeah. Fair enough. I guess if it was your parents, you would have remembered that it was your parents telling you that, but your ne- parents never gave you any sort of pressure on like what you should be doing. The thing is, it life. could be my parents, but my parents were always very supportive of what I wanted to do. And they, but at the same time, they have been very mm. practical and logical about it, which I'm, I'm quite thankful for. So when they said to go, if, if it was, if it yeah. was them to, who's, to, that said to go to JC, I, I think I can see their point of view. And I, I also think that, especially when I haven't fully decided to do music, it, it probably is best. So, so I, I can't remember whether it's them or not, but I'm quite thankful because my parents have been supportive mm. of my musical journey so far, ever since I've been growing up. Yeah, that's nice. I mean, over the last couple of episodes, it's a reoccurring narrative that at the age of 16, everybody wanted to go on to studying music. But a lot of parents were like, you're not ready. Take this time uh, to do something else. And whilst doing something else, reconsider your different options, which is also pretty sound and logical. And like you've mentioned, that you're now conducting like a wide variety of ensembles. So I think that for you, there's absolutely no problem when you stand in front of a brass band and a wind band, right? That is like probably you're in your element in a way because it's ingrained in your uh, Mm -hmm. upbringing as a musician. So how difficult was it when you had to stand in front of an orchestra and communicate to strings players or string players what to do? how to play and what you want. And what about as a euphonium player, we've never had a chance to sit inside an orchestra. So I think having that experience to perform a big symphony would also help in the way you understand the music. But we've got so much of that taken out of our musical development. How do you cope with that? And do you find that it was, ex- uh, do you find that it was challenging for you when you had to adapt from a euphonium player to a conductor. Yeah, um, I, I totally agree with you because when I first started, uh, it was it was quite tricky. And, and the main thing, like you said, was was working with the strings. And I actually spent quite a lot of time at the beginning reading up uh, on string, string techniques. And a lot of people don't know this about me. And I don't think you know this as well. I played the violin for four years in primary school. Surpri- and surprisingly, because it's it's ages ago now, and I I think that the experience of actually playing the violin for four years actually helped accelerate my learning when I was looking at string techniques, because I'm able to visualize a lot of the techniques, even though I might not be able to do them physically now. If that makes sense. So, mm. so I'm I'm able okay. to kind of embody them and kind of explain to it and explain it in some conviction because. I have some sort of experience doing it in the past. And it's, it's quite funny because recently I was, not not recently, uh, last last year actually, I was conducting a, a string orchestra and a lot of them at the end of the rehearsal thought that I was a string player, which I consider that a big win because none of them met me before. Nice. It's quite, it's quite tough. As, the other thing I found quite tough as a euphonium player is when the ensemble initially knows that you're on a euphonium player and then they have this preconceived notion that you have no mm. idea how a string instrument works. And I, I think it's not the case because a lot of euphonium players who have met that are starting to do a bit of conducting, they, they actually work very hard to, to know about string techniques. 
it's kind of a shame, but I, I think once those people get to know me more, they, they realize that actually I, I, I've been reading up quite a lot of it. And in terms of the, you mm. know, how in, intense it is, I, I would say that the changing from playing the euphonium full time, you know, how I was, I was quite crazy about practicing nonstop. And when I was, <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably <laughs> remember me where I just like, I need to practice, yes. I need to practice. I don't think I took more than uh, two or three days off in my four years at RNCM, even during the holidays, because I would insist yeah. on trying to bring my euphonium with me mm-hmm. if I go somewhere else, <laughs> which is kind of, I now I look back at it, I mm-hmm. think it's quite crazy. Sad. Yeah, sad. sad. They're just <laughs> sad. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, it, it was, it's because when I started the conducting program at RNCM, the learning curve was quite steep. And it's really, really, it was, but the thing is, it was, it was so fast paced and intense that one moment we could be assisting at Liverpool Few, the next at BBC Few, and then we had concerts and real shows with, you know, either a brass band, could be a chamber orchestra, it changes all the time, could be an opera scene. Mm. And then we had all these masterclasses going on as well, which was great because we're so busy. And I was always mm. inhaling, it's almost like inhaling new repertoire all the time. Yeah. And as, like like we said before, you know, this repertoire is, is not something I'm familiar with because I think if you studied an orchestral instrument, you would have a basic set of orchestral repertoire that you have played before Definitely. you get to that stage. Yeah. So so in mm. a way, when I'm looking back right now, I, I, I didn't have time at that time to second guess anything because I was so busy. I didn't have time to mm. kind of sit back and process until you reach like, you know, uh, the Christmas break or the Easter break. Then I had time to, to process a bit. And because I was so busy, I had to just throw myself at it. So, yeah. so in a way, it took away from the the worrying about oh, I need to, you know I'm 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 still not so sure about orchestral repertoire. And there was uh, there was another thing that helped me a lot was that um, before I started on the program, I really wanted to be as um, as as ready as I could so that I could hit the ground running when I I started. So in my final year of my undergraduate studies, I did quite a number of masterclasses. And on each of the masterclasses, I, I will make sure I have a fundamental goal of, of, of very basic stuff. Like, you know, not, not fidgeting too much, not make, making sure everything is quite grounded, not doing ridiculous stuff with my left hand. You know, sometimes left hand can be a bit awkward when you're starting out. And I, I, of, of course, during the masterclass, I, I, I listen to as much of what the tutors say to me. But I think especially before starting at RNCM and on the conducting course, I, I think I was the best person to see my progress over the long term because the tutors are different every masterclass you attend and they don't see where you come from or where you're going to next. You know, the masterclass is kind of a one-off kind of speed dating kind of thing. Yeah. And, and so, so I had to set those goals. And also in the last two years of my undergrad, and I, I'm, I, I think you remember this, I was trying to attend as much of as many of the conducting classes as I could. And so I spent yes. a lot of time observing conducting masterclasses and the rehearsals. And I think I've built up quite a, a wealth of information and knowledge. And I just needed the, the practical experience to solidify them. And I think mm. these observations actually help because it helped me got better really quickly. And whenever I did something that didn't work, there's always, you know, something at the back of my mind that I've heard before from one of the classes or one of the rehearsals that I knew that I could try or, or experiment with. And then that helped me figure out quickly what worked and what didn't. 
and I think this observation process is is, is quite important because you, you you immediately know what to do when you're given the podium time. You know, everybody talks about how podium time is so important and so precious. And yeah. it's precious when you have a teacher there because the teacher can tell you what to do. But when you have a podium time that is just on your own, you know, when you're taking a rehearsal yourself. And because mm. of this wealth of um, knowledge from the observations I've been in, I'm able to kind of self-correct uh, in that sense, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's why podium time is so important as well because it's such an experiential, experiential thing. How, okay, obviously when you were in school, I say like if you wanted to create your own opportunities and your own uh, podium time, you would either be given a specific amount of time where you'll be conducting and then feedback will be given to you by the tutors or you can start an ensemble within the school. So they are all students from the school and then you start a particular, maybe a chamber orchestra or chamber ensemble and then you conduct the ensemble. Mm -hmm. So I, I want to now talk to you about work out of the school. What was your process of finding your podium time in a more, I would say, professional environment? I say professional in the sense that you could be conducting amateur groups, but I still regard that as some form of like professional work. You are the professional. Yeah, I agree with that because in, in, even in community groups, the, the conductor is kind of the professional in that setting because you're there, to, you're there as work in that sense yeah I, I totally agree with that yeah yeah and i know what yeah. i mean because i think the the first thing in terms of trying to find podium time outside is always applying for stuff and mm. that that could be anything could be conducting positions you know uh master classes you know there's there's some uh sometimes there's one day choral workshops which i did in my first years of my master's actually i just signed up for a free choral workshop because choral conducting was one thing that I had no clue about at all before. You know, I had some mm. experience with string players and brass players, elmin players, percussionists, yeah. but not choral. So, so you know, just always applying for stuff that you see online. And mm. and I think that that is one thing that, that could ensure podium time. I'm always reaching out to people, meeting people as much as I can. Mm. And I'm still getting better at this because sometimes it, it, it's very... It's outside of a comfort zone to, you know, going up to people and say, hi, I, nice to meet you. I'm, I'm so-and-so. I'm very you yeah. know, love what you're doing here. I can you know, love to be in touch and stuff like that. But mm. I, a lot of my podium time in the past few years outside of the college has been from covering rehearsals at orchestras and wind bands that the conductor couldn't make it. And it was through these this connections and through meeting these people that I managed to get this podium time. So I'm just... You know, I get the call the day before the conductor is sick. Can you come in and, and do this rehearsal? And I and I just go in and do it, even though sometimes the, I had to rush to learn the repertoire in one day, of course. But, you know, it's yeah. you podium time. And it's usually through these connections, especially when going down to the ensemble to do it, that the ensemble would invite me back to do more of it. So as much as possible, I try not to say, say no to opportunities like that. Mm. Yes, of course, you know, sometimes you need to balance what you've got coming up as well if you can't afford the time. But that's a different matter yeah. altogether. And then the, the last thing was towards the end of my undergraduate, I, I was craving for quite a lot of more podium time. So I started uh, organizing some performances of my own. And yeah, of course, some of the performances were more successful than others. But it was great because I got to conduct more. I got to learn new repertoire. 
one of the first performance I organized. I think you, yeah, you're 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 there as well. I you you probably heard it. I I did the recording and it's a live stream one, right? Yeah, I did the recording and broadcast of Jing Chin's uh piece, the the Jack Age. Yeah, yeah, and and that was that was kind of for my fourth year project. At the same time, I wanted more podium time. At the same time, I was always thinking about a chamber orchestra that had one per part. So that ensemble actually had one per part strings, one per part winds, and one per part brass, if I remember correctly. Mm. So it was a string quintet, flute, oboe, clarinet, bassoon, trumpet, trombone, horn, and tuba with percussion yeah. and a piano. Mm, yeah. Okay. And so... So I, I did a few performances with that, that group and I also arranged some stuff. So I, I in, the, in the sense that's when all the reduction stuff I got involved in because I started reducing some orchestra work to, to perform with that group as well. And, but it was, it was not just about the conducting that organizing this stuff was great for because I actually learned quite a lot about organizing people. Yeah. Also about the logistics of, of putting up with putting up performances. You know, it's it's quite tricky trying to put on performances when you're managing quite a lot of it yourself or with a small group of people in, in that sense. Yeah, because you might be uh, writing music, you are conducting, you are organizing the rehearsals and all that kind of stuff. Everything is kind of on you, isn't it? Yeah, and the stuff you the stuff that I, I, I'm quite embarrassed to say this now, but especially in the first few performances, there's stuff that I didn't think about like, oh, how are we going to move the timpani? Where are we going to get a timpani from? And that should be like right at the top of the list, if you know what I mean. And now when I plan stuff like that, that will, that will be at the top of the list in terms of the logistics stuff. Because if you can't transport those, then there's no point organizing those. Mm. Yeah, and so that's quite important as well. Cool. And yeah, from, from the sounds of it, it just sounds like it's a lot of proactivity. You take the step forward to meet people and then when you cover for somebody, you just do the best job be professional and be prepared or as prepared as you can and good things will happen. Yeah, that's that's how I hope it, it is and how I hope it will be as well. So you just have to keep, you know, keep approaching, keep doing stuff and then you don't know where it will lead you. And some sometimes some some strings you pull at will lead to something. Sometimes some strings you pull at will just fall into nothing. And I think... Mm. But if you don't pull anything, you, you won't get anything, if you, if you know what I mean. For sure. Yeah, and uh, and it's, it's, I would say some of it might sound quite scary as well, especially about reaching out to people, meeting people, and emailing people. And I, I think I'm still learning in the process, but I think nobody starts out, you know, being good at it. And obviously at the beginning, it might be a bit awkward or you might be trying to find the right words to say. But mm. I think as time goes along, I'm starting to get better at it. Yeah, and, and it is a skill set, isn't it? you develop this skill set to be able to sort of, you, call, you can call that self-promotion, you can call, call that public relations or, or whatever, but it is something that has to be practiced and developed. Yeah, definitely. And even having like a website and stuff like that, you know, four years ago, I wouldn't even think of having a website. I would think it's too, what do you call it, too, too self-centered in that sense. Mm. But then when I was talking to more people and especially more more musicians that I'll be working out in the professional world instead of just being in the, the college. They, they all say the same thing. What if someone sees you perform and they have no way to contact you? The first thing they'll do is they'll Google, go onto Google and try to find you. 
Yeah. If they can find nothing online, then that's it. Then that the 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 path ends there. Yeah, the trail ends, right? Yeah. And that's that's the end of it. Yeah. Now that you've mentioned that, uh, Melvin's got his own website as well. So if you want to check it out, it is melvintay.com. So M-E-L-V-I-N-T-A-Y dot com. So on the website, I would believe are some of his work as well as his different social media accounts. So you can just click on them and follow, support, and just know more about what he's been up to. Yeah, great. Thanks. Good. So chatting with you is always fantastic. Lots of love, lots of fun, and time absolutely flew by. So, but I still want to carry on talking. I still have a few questions I want to ask you. Okay. Um, so I think now that you are a conductor, mm-hmm. uh, what is your answer when somebody asks you, uh, how would you define the role as conductor? Okay, uh, how long have you got to... <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know, have you... Have you, have you because you said you watch um, Mark's uh, broadcast, right? Do you see what he put on when about the the quotes from Mark Wiggersworth book? Yes, absolutely insane. Yeah, because I crazy I was reading this book during the lockdown, and I, maybe maybe I'll just read one or two sentences. I won't read the whole thing because it's too long. But yeah. you know, he 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 approached some players and asked them to write down what they look for in the conductor, right? And then the mm-hmm. the response was incredibly long. It'll probably take me ten minutes to read the whole thing. But basically, conductors need good bit baton technique, rehearsal technique, musicianship, knowledge, and then it goes on and on with more adjectives. They must not talk over rehearse, under rehearse, and then it keeps going. And then at the very end, after the whole long list, they must not be egocentric, intimidating, sarcastic, rude, boring, nervous, bullying, ugly, smelly, over <laughs> you, you get an idea. I, I just, I, I, I really hope I'm not Smelly and ugly. That's that's. <laughs> <laughs> Is that your concern? Yeah, that's that's quite a big concern, you know. Smiling <laughs> like, to other, you know, the first cornets thing. That's the solo cornets, and then they look up one more. The conductor smells so bad. Something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, but um, I I think the role of the conductor really changes, depend on the situation. Really depends on the situation. And if you ask me this six months ago. Or if you ask me this in six months time, I'll probably give you a different answer because of where mm. I am in my journey. And yeah. at this point in time, on a very fundamental level, I think the, the conductor is about bringing things together. So it could be putting the music together, bringing people together. It could even be bringing musicians closer to what the music means, like, like a guide. So the, the, the fundamental thing is about bringing things together. And the role changes depending on the situation. So sometimes, you know, you there's almost no rehearsal time and the conductor needs to, to be a traffic cop and, you know, bring everything together as soon as possible. You know, sometimes mm. the people want to, to know more and get deeper into the music. So the conductor needs to have very strong knowledge about the repertoire, about the details in the score to make the, the music come alive. And then sometimes when you're working with community groups, you know, it's important to push the group to, to a, as high a level as possible. But as, at the same time, it's important to, to make sure it's engaging and fun. And then mm. quite often with community groups, you'll find a conductor either going to one side where they're just pushing all the time or going to the other side where it's just it's really fun, but you know the quality is not that good. And I think it's about balance. 
Yeah. So so is in in essence is is this this few things where the conductor needs to bring th- things together through knowledge, be it the 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 repertoire or the the background history or the details in the score, and using some sort of balance so that it's engaging mm. everybody. Yeah, I think that that as a whole encompasses it. And I I think you have conducted a bit yourself, right? I mean, on and off with you know euphonium ensembles. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're pushing it a little bit when you call it conducting. Yeah, but uh, I mean, but, there's something you 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 think of when you are in that position. You, you know what I mean? Yeah, I get the, the sense of bringing things together, like resonates with me really well, mm-hmm. because I think essentially that is uh, my job, kind of make sure that everyone is able to play together, you bring the music together, you line things up in a way. Of course, the, the kind of conducting work that I do um, right now, I work with a uh, primary school brass band. Mm-hmm. So that itself, making sure that everyone understands what I'm doing, the, the beat patterns and making sure that everyone is playing on time, um, that is of my utmost priority mm-hmm. because of the, the level of playing uh, or the level of the students I'm working with. Everything is sort of like, yeah, just making sure everyone starts on time, brief together and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why that's why I mean, it, it really depends on the situation you're in, because because sometimes when I work with a sometimes I cover for a youth orchestra and stuff like that as well. It's the same thing. It's it's kind of uh, note bashing, so you kind mm. of have to just be really clear. There's no point doing the trying to show phrasing and stuff yeah, like that. Fair enough, because it confuses them at the early stage when they're just trying to get the right notes. And what I can see is your approach when you're conducting. Uh, let's take for example now different types of uh, different types of ensemble, but at the same playing level. So let's say we have a uh, an orchestra, we have a wind band, we have a brass band. All three of these groups are at a similar level. I think your approach to these groups would more or less be the same. Of the idea of bringing things together, bring the music together, bring the musicians and the ideas, uh, uh, making them a little bit more uniform right but the act of doing it does it mm-hmm. change in different ensembles so the way you conduct an orchestra the way you conduct a wind band the way you conduct a brass band does your technique have to change or does it more or less remains the same i i think personally i don't conduct differently when i stand in front of an orchestra wind band or brass band for for me i think the fundamental physical gestures mm are almost all the same. So, so you know, the, the the beating pattern, the way you want to phrase something. That being said, I think there are, of course, some specific uh, gestures that would work better for a particular instrument group, like for a brass group mm. or, or a string group, or for a particular technique. And it's it's a bit hard to explain over, over audio here. But, like, you know, there's some physical things that a conductor can do just to make a pizzicato mm. happen together in the string section. If you know what I mean? So so it's all this specific stuff that, that might be different. But as a whole, I, I don't think I consciously do anything different. And I think the biggest difference when working with these different groups is the language I use. Because it's important to know what to say to a string section versus mm, okay. what to say to a wind or brass section. You know, the, the language you use, you talk about breath, you talk about, you know, the bow stroke, or you talk about what bowing to use. Sometimes you do that, sometimes string sections don't really want you to talk about bowing, so it depends. But the language you use, and especially when it comes to singers as well, 
you know, there's talk about the the text, where where to place the consonants, how to shape the vowels and stuff like that, and how how the content, the 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 story of the text actually affect the phrasing and the color of the voice and stuff like that. So the main difference I would say is is the language you use to explain yeah getting the musical point but physically there's no change unless you are trying to get a specific effect from from a particular group yeah cool and this is a very difficult or dangerous line to to thread right because like you said sometimes string section don't like you to talk about bowing sometimes wind or brass players don't like you to teach them how to play you can tell them what you want, but you don't explain to them how to achieve that particular sound. Yeah, that's... Yeah, when you cross that line, sometimes people are like, well, do you play the instrument? <laughs> right? So, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure as a player, you have at some point in your career felt that way as well. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And that's why it's quite careful to phrase the language as well, depending on the group we work with. Because mm. sometimes you work with a youth group or a group that's that's quite new or a community group that they would love to hear, you know, when you talk about need breath or breath support or... Technical advice, right? Yeah. yeah. But whereas, mm. especially it gets... It goes different when you get people that are either music students or professionals and then... They, they want to take ownership on what, what they're producing, which is, I mean, not saying that, you, you know what I mean, they, 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 they're yeah. trying to, they want to offer something as well. I, I feel that it's important to just say the musical intention instead of saying anything specific. Mm. And, then, and when, when I do say anything specific, and it's, it's only for a few highlighted points, like I'll say, can we try this Boeing instead and see whether it's worked better? If it doesn't, then fine, you know. But I yeah. would use it very sparingly and use it at, you know, you need to decide which battles you want to fight and which battles is not worth fighting. And so much of it is then understanding the group that you're working with, right? Whether they are receptive towards certain things or they are not receptive towards certain things. So you got to understand them and build up that kind of um, dynamic with the group. Yeah, and especially when you build up more trust with the group. Like, if a group really respects you and trusts you a lot, you can say all kinds of things with, with like specific techniques and they are happy with it. But it's, it's really mm. filling the room, I think. I think that's that's one quite an important thing to, to fill the room. Yeah. And yeah, I think it's, it's quite interesting as well because we, we are talking about the difference between conducting the different groups, right? And I don't know what you thought about this, but do you feel, feel that when you played with the orchestra, like when you played the, mm-hmm. in the, the opera with OMM, do you feel that the you were playing further behind the beat? And when you were playing the, the trombone as well with, with uh, uh, musicians' initiatives, and yeah. do you feel like it's, it's further behind the beat compared to wind and brass bands? For me, I think uh, Valkyrie, that was extremely straightforward. I had no problem. Mm-hmm. Conductor was clear, um, easy to follow. Nothing flashy, but, you know, extremely reliable. Yeah. Yeah. So that was easy for me. I had a little bit of struggle in the Brahms. But what was nice about the Brahms was I was playing second. So I was constantly just trying to cling on to the first player. Uh, was that Don on first? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So uh, he also kind of uh, made life easier. And o- of course, uh, all wind on bass trombone, fantastic as well. So my job was to just basically balance up 
fill up the middle of the section. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say this, but I was listening more to my principal than actually watching the conductor. Yeah. No, and that, that makes sense. And I think most groups actually do that as well. That's why conducting is quite a... It really depends on how much the the ensemble listen to each other and how much they rely on the conductor as well. And sometimes there's a delay in that effect. And I think what is nice is the nuance in the conducting. When I was in the UK, sometimes when we play in brass band, the conductor in front, for them, a slow section and a fast section, the beating style is exactly the same, which kind of mm-hmm. frustrates me sometimes. Because... Mm-hmm. I totally know what you mean. Yeah, totally yeah it's, it's so difficult to play in a singing or legato style when your beats are kind of like so angular and hard and, you know, heavy. Yeah, it's almost the ensemble to ignore the conductor <laughs> when you do stuff. Yeah, like yeah, exactly. You know, and I almost feels like, feels like their job is to literally just beat time. Yeah. You know, I think that has, like, I wouldn't even say, like, for example, you were talking about bringing things together and stuff like that. For me, that is not bringing things together. That is just beating time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're not communicating anything to the musicians except you're telling them that this is a 4-4, this is a 3-4. But that is just my perspective. Not sure if it counts for anything. No, it, it counts a lot because, you know, you guys are making the sound. I mean, <laughs> 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 any sound is, is a bit strange sometimes. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's what you say to all the instrumentalists. And then yeah. when you're speaking to your conducting friends, then it's a different it's like, narrative oh altogether. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, now, knowing you for quite a number of years now, mm-hmm. and always talking to you about plans for the future, with you, the thought of moving back to Singapore seems to have never crossed your mind. Why, why do you feel this way? At any point in a career, have you thought that maybe it is time for me to come back to Singapore? Actually, it did, it did cross my mind a few times, especially at the start of my final year in undergraduate. Because at that time, I wasn't sure what to do. Because at the start of my undergraduate, I wasn't sure I was going to get onto the conducting course. Didn't know whether I wanted to do a postgraduate in euphonium. You know, stuff like that. So, yeah. But after I got onto the conducting course and I end up focusing on conducting full-time, it, it feels like a totally different journey from, from the undergraduate days. And I really wanted to explore all the, the exciting possibilities, you know, all the exciting opportunities out there and just see where the, the journey takes me. And this, this past three years, I, I have such an amazing experience and even with all these ex- amazing experiences, I just still feel as though I'm only scratching the surface in terms of you know conducting experience, working with both uh, amateur and professional musicians, you know, and even in terms of the variety of music I'm working with. Yeah, mm. so, so I really want to go as far as I can to see where, where this path takes me. And, yep. and that's, that's why I think I, I've, I've been trying to, to be based here in Europe because one of the big biggest factors that I wanted to be here for quite some time is because of the number of contacts and connections I built up with and and you know there's so many different people and organizations I've met in the the music community here and I think being based here would help me develop that and, and nurture that 
And like I said back in the beginning, you know, if I'm able to keep pulling at these strings, you never know where the strings will lead up to. So that's that's why I kind of want to to be in a position where I'm able to do that. And I also feel there's so much more for me to to explore and to develop, and also to ex- experience. You know, I mean, now there's COVID nineteen and everything is on lockdown. Some of the European countries are starting to up again, but it's still a bit sparse at the moment. But when things get back to normal, there's you know there's countless number of festivals, masterclasses, and competitions you know throughout all of Europe. And I want to be able to be able to attend those stuff. In not saying that we can't do that from Singapore, but every time you try to attend something like that from Singapore, it just double the cost of attending a, a masterclass. More than double. Yeah, yeah. So you, so you know what I mean. So, and then it kind of restricts you instead of doing. Three masterclasses. I can only do one if I travel from Singapore. You, you know, and mm. even where I am right now, it's it's great because it's it's connected to a lot of the major art cities. Mm. And you know, just looking at professional symphony orchestras, without counting the smaller groups, not not even counting like chamber orchestras or contemporary music groups. You know, in in Manchester alone, there's two. You take a one hour train to Liverpool, there's one. You take a two and a half hours train ride to London, and then there's five there. Yeah, and then you know, going to places like Berlin, you can get a return flight for between fifty to hundred pounds. I think mm. most of the time. Yeah. So, so that's that's why because I, I I feel like I'm still finding my way in this in this journey, and it's both a bit scary and exciting. And I I feel where I am now is the best place for me for me to develop as a mm. as a conductor. And, yeah, I would love to go back to to Singapore sometime over the next few years. You know, hopefully to do some projects, but mm. we'll have to see when such opportunities arise. So, if you have any gigs, do let me know. For know? sure, for sure. I mean, I've always been thinking, and you, I, to be honest, with what you've said, you made a pretty strong case for yourself why it's good for you to be based in Manchester at this point of time in your career development. And I completely agree with you. Mm-hmm. Give yourself the best chance. You are young. If not now, then when? Yeah, definitely. If you move back here, then you'll find work and then it'll be difficult for you to then tell yourself that I'm going to leave and I'm going to go somewhere and rebuild all this context all over again. Uh, there, there, there are many reasons to move, I think, but it, it kind, you kind of have to take a few steps back if you move somewhere else, if you know what I mean. Mm. You start yeah, reading. definitely. And whether that few steps back is worth the move, sometimes it's, it's hard. Yeah. You know, I think only in the future we will know whether it was the right decision or not. You know, in terms of projects in Singapore, you're always on my mind. Uh, give me a little bit more time and hopefully I'll come up with something. That's great. Looking forward to it, yeah. Yeah. Always on my mind. Is that a euphonium piece as well? The <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, the countless uh, slow melodies that we have. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> this is a great session. I thank you so much for taking time out to do this. No, thanks for having me. And, you know, I really look forward to the time where we can go grab food together again, you know, and eat as well. For sure. I want to go back to Manchester. Yeah, to just go and see friends. Uh, some of the euphonium players of my time. That <laughs> I stud- uh, my, my schoolmates are still all based in the region, I think. Yeah, when this whole thing blows by, I'm going to go to Manchester and pay everybody a visit. Should be nice. That'll be awesome, I think. Yeah, and your your year is the biggest one, I think. There's so many of you. Yeah, insane. Yeah, it was eight. And then at some point, seven, 
at some point eight again. Oh yeah, because Calvin went in later, isn't it? In that yeah. Yes, and then yeah, but I think at the end of it we had seven, which is still pretty crazy. Great, and I look forward to having you back on the show sometime in the future. Yeah, this has been amazing. It's been almost so searching. Some of the questions that you have asked me. <laughs> That that's that's very high praise. Yeah, you you've been extremely kind. Um, but I'm glad you enjoyed yourself, and hopefully, in the next time, I speak to you, you'll be doing a few more different things, and you can share with us your experiences and further developments of your career. Looking forward to it. Thank you. Yeah. Meanwhile, please take care of yourself in the UK. I know I don't know how stringent the rules are there, but please, uh, stay safe, stay healthy. Yeah, be a Singaporean, basically. <laughs> Thanks. And likewise to you as well. If you'd like to know more uh, regarding Melvin, you can visit uh, his website, melvintay.com. That's M-E-L-V-I-N-T-A-Y.com. And you can find all his social media accounts like Instagram and Twitter on there. Please give him a follow and you can be more updated with uh, whatever he's doing in Manchester. Uh, I will provide the link in the show description. And on that note, we will sign off on this episode of You Play A What. You have been listening to You Play A What, hosted by Vincent Tan. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the subscribe button so that you'll be notified when a new episode is posted. Rate and review the podcast and share it with your friends if you feel so inclined. The theme music for the podcast is entitled Midnight Affairs and is composed by Algirdas Matonis and recorded by Vincent Tan. Thank you so much for listening to You Play or What? Until next time.